I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Today, we're talking about the conflict in Yemen, and I'm joined by Nadwal Dawsari, a Yemen analyst at the Middle East Institute, and she's currently based in Washington, D.C., and Peter Salisbury, who does Yemen analysis for the International Crisis Group. Both of them have long uh, records studying uh, uh, Yemen. Nadwa herself is Yemeni. Both of them have done a lot of work on the ground uh, in Yemen. And I'm grateful for both of you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the Biden administration's rollout of its new Yemen policy, which both of you have publicly weighed in on. What is new in the Biden uh, uh, declaration that that the administration will try to end the war in Yemen? And what is feasible in this new policy? And Nadwa, let's start with you. I think what Biden wants to do is kind of push for a diplomatic approach. Uh, four years of Trump administration, uh, Trump gave unconditional support to the Saudi-led coalition's uh, military intervention in Yemen. Um, and so Biden wants to end the war. Um, and his appointment of Lender King and commitment to end the war through diplomatic means. Um, I, th- I think what's new about this policy is that uh, there is a fixation on only a diplomatic solution uh, to the conflict in Yemen. But I, you know, I, I don't think it's feasible given the circumstances in, in Yemen. And of course, a diplomatic solution is the goal and it should be the goal. But then when you have a military situation in the ground that doesn't really support um, a diplomatic solution where, you know, the Houthis have been, have expanded militarily and they're not listening to any calls to de-escalate. They're now threatening Marib City, which is the last stronghold of the government that hosts 3 million civilians, including almost 2 million IDPs. So, So calling for a ceasefire and calling for a diplomatic solution when the Houthis are not listening, are not responding to these calls, it's it's just not going to work. Um, well, I want to I want to get you to explain a little bit to our listeners because I think your 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 take on this is interesting. Where where we've we've witnessed a, a horrendous humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen over many years, uh, avoidable aggressive war uh, that was supported by the by the U.S. administration initially under Obama. Uh, and most people uh, I follow really objected to the way that the Trump administration managed the conflict, either by, by uh, sort of giving the green light to the worst excesses of the Emiratis and the Saudis, or not really engaging a- at all. Uh, now we have this Big shift in rhetoric where, you know, including that key phrase, ending the war in Yemen. Uh, and and I was struck and, and thought it was interesting that, that, that your take is that this is also uh, not promising. Uh, so even though it's, a, it's a, a, sh- a shift in the strategic goal and a shift in the rhetoric, uh, you seemed, uh, from what I read uh, of you, uh, of your writing on this, you seemed concerned that, that this would potentially even exacerbate the conflict rather than, than help Yemenis. Why is that? Yeah, so my concern is that both Trump and Biden were um, more incited by D.C. politics rather than the situation in Yemen or what's good for Yemen. Um, So Biden, uh, uh, 
Trump gave, and before that, Obama as well, they gave unconditional support for the Saudi-led coalition, the Saudis and the Emiratis. Uh, and everybody wants to talk about the Saudis, but nobody wants to talk about the Emiratis. Um, both have uh, are responsible for uh, for uh, uh, you know extreme uh, extreme violations of human rights, of you know large numbers of civilian casualties, of torture, abuse, uh, you name it. Also, both have kind of divided the anti-Houthi forces, which also played into the hands of the Houthis and uh, militarily. At the same time, now you have Biden who wants to, I want to say Biden wants to un-Trump the Yemen intervention um, and kind of come with this romantic approach of, you know, we want to end the conflict and we want to do it only diplomatically. And I am with with a diplomatic solution, only that the circumstances on the ground are not attainable yet to diplomatic solution. So the Biden administration will, will, will pressure the Saudis, will pressure Hadi government to a ceasefire, and it has done that in the past. But at the same time, if you can pressure one side and that one side agrees and accepts the ceasefire when the other side, which is the Houthis, are not accepting, then you are inadvertently you know, aiding the Houthis militarily, which happened. It happened in, in, in 2018, in December 2018, with the Stockholm Agreement that the UN envoy brokered, um, which, you know, the, the Biden administration supported the ceasefire there. And what happened was the Saudis and the Emiratis and the government stopped the, the attempt to take the seaport from the Houthis. But at the same time, what the Houthis did, they exploited that ceasefire, they regrouped, they sent their forces to Marib. They they made substantial military gain because that military pressure is you know stopped, and um, and now they're threatening Marib. The, again, the last stronghold of the government, and they they they've been fierce in trying to take the city. So how can you talk diplomacy with a group that does not really understand diplomacy um, and a group that? views the war as Saudi war on Yemen, which is them, and does not recognize any other group. The Houthis do not recognize the Yemeni government, do not recognize anybody who was opposed to them. They call them ISIS, mercenaries, and they, they believe in a divine right to rule. And they are superior militarily. They have weapons. They, they, um, and, and so, you know, how can you talk about the diplomacy under such circumstances is... It's just hard to reason with that. So, Peter, I think this is this is your department. This is exactly the the question you're trying to answer at Crisis Group. How can you approach uh, diplomacy with with the group that that uh, meets these these uh, conditions that that Nadwa described? Sure. Can I just really quickly talk about the the Biden administration because I do Absolutely. think it's fascinating to see this really rapid shift in rhetoric, if not actually sort of real operational realities. Because when we, we look at what the Biden administration is doing, it's really in many ways responding to internal debates within policy circles in DC and particularly within parts of the progressive wing of the, the, the Democratic Party. Um, I think several different things are happening all at once. First, the Biden administration has been pretty clear in saying it wants to reduce its footprint in an exposure to the Middle East and North Africa. It wants to return to the JCPOA, which I think people in the administration see as a way of reducing the sort of worst case scenario risks of conflict in the region, 
And they want, I think, in the longer term to move towards some kind of regional security architecture built around all the different different people involved. That's kind of point one. The second point is that on, on Yemen, they they want to de-escalate the war and the end and the fighting, partly because you've got a lot of people from the former Obama administration. And it was on their watch that the US took this weird one foot in, one out, foot out approach to the war where we're gonna support the Saudis a bit in the conflict and in important ways and make ourselves complicit when they screw up airstrikes. But we're also going to call for a political solution to end the the war. And they've kind of removed ambiguity around their stance by saying, we're just not going to be involved in the military side of things at all. And that speaks to issues within DC, which go back to 2018 after the, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, where you saw this sharp turn against Saudi Arabia. That led to greater scrutiny on, on the US role in in Yemen. And again, that's something that began under Obama, not, not Biden. When it comes down to it, though, what you don't hear in these conversations around Yemen policy a lot of the time is Yemen itself, which is the point that the Nadwa is making really succinctly, which is you've got this really complicated, multi-fronted, multi-faceted war between the Houthis and their allies in the north on one side and multiple groups on the the other side. And what the the approach seems to be up till now is, well, let's stop the the fighting. Let's find a way to to stop sort of Houthi cross-border attacks um, and the fighting on the ground and then work out some kind of politics to to fix things. And the the fear among many Yemenis in in the anti-Houthi Sides. I mean, that's that's an inelegant way of phrasing it. But people who sort of see the Houthis as a, a threat to the future of of Yemen, of of any form of civil society, democratization, so on and so forth, their fear is that really, if you can stop the the fighting for a little while, get the Saudis out, um, there's a chance that the U.S. and others might just call it a day, call it success, and walk away and not really follow up on the, the political piece. And I think uh, Nabwa can tell me if I've got that completely wrong. That That's an understandable concern. Um, and what people like my organization, Crisis Group, we, we have a, a, a philosophy that is that we should try and resolve violent conflict and prevent violent conflict through through mediation. And that means that we're often bringing solutions to the, the table that people think don't actually sort of address the the root cause of, of conflict because they they do think that you need to address the the power balance on the ground. But I mean, as Nadwa and I have discussed endlessly over over the the years and always had great conversations about the the problem with waiting for the balance of power to change in one direction. And in this case, among people who are scared of the the Houthis becoming sort of their de facto rule being legitimized, is that sort of if you wait them out. There's the, the strong possibility that they end up taking over places like Marib, where they're fighting really intensely right now and expanding nationwide. And I think it comes back to a point that we often hear on Yemen, which is there aren't really many good choices to be made here. There are only least bad choices. I don't know what you think, Nadwa. No, I, I completely agree with Peter. And Peter was among the first analysts who really did a great job in unpacking the complexity of the conflict and the different actors and how, you know, the current peace process is kind of focused on only main actors and neglecting all 
other actors on the ground who have built legitimacy and who also are, you know, are are powerful as well. Um, and I mean, I agree. There is no ideal situation for the Yemen war. No solution right now will end the war, but I think there are ways to kind of bring Yemen closer to ending the war. And in my opinion, a political settlement um, under the current circumstances are not going to do that. Um, diplomacy is great, and some organizations are, you know, are only advocate for diplomacy. And I think the time for diplomacy will come. And I think, I think we can do diplomacy now. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean that it will come. I think we can do diplomacy now, and negotiations should continue and should expand to include other actors. But at the same time, diplomacy does not work if you don't have leverage. And nobody has leverage on the Houthis. So that leverage has to be built. Um, and unfortunately, in my opinion, and in a lot of Yemenis also think the same way, that unless Houthis are weakened militarily, they're not going to, um, to accept uh, political settlements and um, give concessions. So that has to happen. Uh, Houthi threat on Marib has to end. And it cannot... The, the government forces and the tribes have been fighting uh, defensive since January last year. So it's been 15 months um, and Houthis are making gains every day. And it, it, I mean, if this continues, it will all, only be a matter of time before they take Marib. And if they take Marib, the situation will get much, much worse, uh, not only from a humanitarian perspective, but also in terms of, you know, um, the possibility of a political solution altogether. Um, so what I want to say is that I am with diplomacy, but right now the U.S., the U.N., and everybody else should stop asking the Saudis and Hadi government to de-escalate in Marib because it's the, it's the de-escalation that allowed the Houthis to make gain. We need offensive in Marib to push the Houthis far away where they're no longer a threat to Marib. And then we can talk about a diplomatic solution. We'll be back after a quick break. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at the Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. You can see our ideas and join the conversation on our website, tcf.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm talking about Yemen with Nadwa Dawsari and Peter Salisbury. Before the break, Nadwa, you said something that I would caricature as, uh, I'm all for diplomacy, but first we need to have a huge military offensive against the Houthis uh, so that diplomacy can favor the, the side uh, that you prefer. Um, and I think that is sort of the nub of the problem uh, with with thinking through what's happening in Yemen. And, and one problem is that uh, the Saudi-led side has been unable to turn any of the, the military equation in its favor over years and years and years of, frankly, really you know, criminally irresponsible uh, war fighting with U.S. support. Um, and on the other hand, um, 
it is terrible on a humanitarian level and a strategic level to see the Houthis uh, on the verge of outright winning winning the war. Uh, but we know from we know from studying conflict forever, and specifically from looking at Yemen, you can't really plan a, a good future on the hopes that you know one more last offensive or one more doubling down on one last battle will somehow work out in in the way you hope. Um, it could even catastrophically backfire and and uh, and so you you sort of end up making uh, peace with the the crummy adversaries you have and with the problematic allies you have and and that's the uh uh the approach that crisis groups takes and of course the problem with uh the 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 latest set of crisis group recommendations on Yemen which I read before this conversation um which which Peter says I may or may not have characterized it in that impolite way the problem with with those recommendations is that if you actually read them they don't they don't recommend anything that will actually have any results they basically seem to outline a lot of really sound reasonable approaches and if you were to do them all you would end up more or less where you are now which is realistic but also not helpful because it doesn't tell us anything that could actually change uh you know either and the conflict or reduce the conflict or make a, a political outcome more likely. So are we, are we facing a reality where the American interest is simply going to be to not have American blood directly on, on the U S military's hands, and then to let this terrible conflict play out in a way that probably will favor the Houthis? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that's, that's a genuine concern for for me, which is that the bare acceptable minimum for some people on on the the Washington side of things would be get the U.S. out of the war, get the Saudis out of the war, have some sort of temporary detente, and then kind of leave the the Yemenis to it. And that's that's not good news for for anyone at all. And then, of course, sort of. When it comes to trying to get the US or any international actor to take a, a long-term holistic approach to a conflict like Yemen's, engaging with all the, the complexity on the ground and trying to sort of over time maneuver things from military confrontation to political competition, these things are great in theory, um, but in practice are just super hard to do. And years and years of working on diplomacy um, on Yemen in particular, but on the Gulf region as well, has kind of taught me that people are always looking for quick wins that they can sell as as major uh, achievements. With that said, um, and without overselling the new envoy to, to Yemen, the US envoy to Yemen, Tim Lenderking, he seems to be pretty clear-eyed. He, he was working on this file before about the challenges and the potential pitfalls of going for, for quick wins. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you, you're right to raise the points you do, but at the same time, the, the underlying structural challenges of the conflict don't go away. Um, and the fact is the U.S. doesn't want to be in Yemen. It doesn't want to be in the Middle East. So a lot of the recommendations my organization is bringing forward are based on the assumption that we can't change this, this structural shift in U.S. approach, which has actually been kind of in the works for the better part of a, a decade. 
and then we have to deal with that reality as well. And and this is what I was looking for in in your report and also in the long piece that uh, Rob Malley, who was uh, formerly the head of Crisis Group and now is in the administration, uh, wrote in Foreign Affairs. Uh, I was looking for specifics of how we actually implement this idea of shifting away from mil- from military tools to non-military tools. So the premise is that Biden wants to remain engaged in the Middle East, uh, not with the same sort of breathlessness as we've seen for the last 20 years, and to shift U.S. engagement away from always being through military tools to, to non-military tools. And I, I, su- I support that 100%. I think that's exactly the right idea. But in practice, what what does that mean? What does that mean in Yemen uh, if, if we disinvest in targeting uh, uh, aid to the Saudis and, and uh, military aid and, and weapon sales to, to, to the Saudis and Emiratis that are feeding into this war. Uh, what What is the thing that we replace that with? What is the non-military presence, tool, leverage, uh, uh, spending, you name it? What's the modality that, that we deploy uh, in order to have some influence in in that space uh, uh, to make up for the the withdrawal of the military influence. And, and that I'd, I'd love, I think, Nadwa first, because you seem really eager to make sure that the U.S. Uh, uh, keeps its hand on the on the tiller somehow. What are the ways that, that it can do so? Um, well, first of all, I did not say that I want an offensive to favor the size I, the side I like. Um, I told you that my was my point, caricature of what you yeah, said, so I apologize my- <laughs> if it was inaccurate. Yeah, my point is, and I'm talking realistically, I'm talking practically, given the circumstances on the ground. Um, I'm not talking arms sale, I'm not talking peace, I'm not talking what's ideal, because we're not in an ideal situation, and we have to think tactically before we think strategically. Uh, there has to be some tactic moves now for the strategic objective. And the strategic objective, I agree, is to end the arms sale to, to for Saudis and Emiratis to completely exit from Yemen and then for, for Yemenis to kind of, you know, lead the solution to the war. But right now we have a, a problem and we need to take care of it. And I, I know one thing, Thanase, um, I know one thing um, that if airstrikes stop today, Houthis will take Marib overnight. And they will move to Shabwa, and they will move to Hadramaut, and then they will retake the rest of Yemen. They have superior military capabilities to any other actor in Yemen. Um, and they they reside on 70% of the population, so they have a lot of fighters too. So realistically speaking, we need that offensive. And it doesn't have to be a massive offensive everywhere. We need, we need a... a, a, a an offensive to push Houthis far away where they're no longer a threat to Marib city um, so that we change the military trajectory where they have, um, they have more incentive to compromise and, and give concessions and accept the political solution. Right now, that doesn't exist. And to keep pushing for peace or political solution when they're not, it's just, I'm sorry, it's just naive. It's just like you, you, uh, you stick your head in the sand and pretend that you know it's going to be all right. You know everything would be solved diplomatically. Can and can that <laughs> offensive you're talking about happen without direct American support? I mean, is, is Hadi's government and the and the Saudis and whoever's left on the ground ca- capable of doing that? Uh, not without the airstrikes, but um, I mean, but do they uh, need? I mean, specifically, do they need America 
to do those airstrikes that you did. Well, I'm not a military. I'm not. No, we don't need America to do the airstrike. The Saudis are doing the airstrikes. And I'm not, you know, an expert in what kind of weapons the Saudi, the America give to the Saudis and how the Saudis use their weapons. But I, we need the airstrikes to sustain because it's the only thing that's standing between, uh, you know, between Houthis taking Marib. Um, and, you know, and, and you know, you, you said that uh, a military solution, it's been six years and the military solution is not working. But honestly, the military, the, 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 the trajectory on the ground, the militarily, have changed in favor of the Houthis when? When the, when the U.S. and the international community and the U.N. started putting pressure on the Saudis and Hadi government to, um, to de-escalate, which they did. And they committed to the ceasefire. Houthis didn't. They exploited that completely, and they made massive military gain. So, so my, you know, that has to stop for for the time being. We need to 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 remove Houthis' threat on Marib, and then we can talk about a, a political solution. But right now, talking about political solution is is just not realistic. So, I, I suppose the the challenge that that I see is that, and, and I, I agree, I mean, my, again, Crisis Group, my, my organization in 2018, um, was a pretty loud voice um, advocating for international intervention to prevent a battle for Hodeida on the, the Red Sea coast, which is what Nadwa is, is talking about. I think when she says just a couple of years ago, the, the military balance of power wasn't where it is today. We did that on the basis that it was going to cut off Food supplies, trade flows into Hodeida, which provide you know millions of people with food, and, and would have made the the hunger crisis starkly worse. Would have shifted the balance of power in in the the direction of anti Houthi forces, but wouldn't have definitively led to to an end to to the conflict in any way, shape, or form. And we're making the same arguments on on Marib all over all over again this time. But the challenge that as we see it is. You know, 2018, you can go to the Emiratis the, who are driving that campaign. You can go to the Saudis and you can say, look, guys, I mean, this is going to be really bad for your international image. This time around, you know, the Houthis aren't going to respond to those kind of entreaties. Um, and we put a statement out last week. I've had some really interesting conversations with some people in the Houthi camp since then where they're, they're kind of saying, you know, the humanitarian concerns you, you raise are, are not valid. Um, so what have we got other than sort of a nationwide ceasefire, which is sort of first and foremost what everyone's saying they need. They don't want to do another limited ceasefire like they did in Hodeida, and then without sort of giving something up to the, the, the Houthis. And this is this is where I really struggle, because if if I thought there were alternatives to pushing for a, a nationwide ceasefire right now, then then I probably would. And I, I do take into account sort of people's concerns, but at one and the same time, I'm just trying to like find out, work out how we thread that that needle. And you can't, the theory at least is, that you can't really do a ceasefire without having some kind of politics to hang it on. Otherwise, you're just sort of waiting, sitting, waiting for your ceasefire to, to fail. I don't think that we should be moving towards a quick political settlement that is kind of like, this is going to be the status quo forever, but maybe a, a move towards some sort of interim uh, arrangement. I know that, that Nadwa probably, um, and I'll let her speak for herself, but but think sort of 
that if you do that, that's maybe handing more advantage to the, the Houthis. But then how do, without sort of hanging everything on that, how do we stop the battle for Hodeida from, um, for Hodeida, sorry, from Marib from taking place? Well, and, and I want to throw one, one more idea out uh, uh, before Nadwa r- responds. Uh, I, you know, I don't mean to sound unsympathetic to, to Nadwa's position. I mean, that, that, you know, my sort of my, my ethics and my, my preferences are with, I think, the kind of outcome she'd like to see in Yemen. Uh, but the, the problem I face is that, you know, we have a very long track record uh, uh, starting with America's completely open-ended war in Afghanistan, um, which if, uh, and, and the approach of many actors, including America in Syria, which is uh, to essentially embrace the idea that, that open-ended military commitments c- can be made politically cost-free and then can be carried on for essentially forever. So if you don't like the outcome of a war that you're part of, uh, if the, you know, if the other side wins or is winning, you never have to acknowledge that victory. You never have to acknowledge, uh, a new balance of power. You can just have these, these fatuous, uh, positions like the U S talking about regime change in Syria long after, uh, it's, it's clear that the Assad regime is going to stay in power or many quarters of the U S talking about how we just need another 10 or 20 years in Afghanistan, uh, you know, to keep the Taliban in check and so on. So this is the intellectual framework in which, uh, uh, we're talking about not just the war in Yemen, uh, or the wars in Yemen generally, but specifically the U S role, uh, in those wars. And I want to see us stop normalizing that on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't want the price of that to be an unjust uh, or inhumane outcome. Um, And I think this is what's so ugly about the choice here because, uh, you know, regardless of the justice of of Nadwa's position, uh, really the U.S. has to stop being involved in this war. Um, and at that point, if the Saudis want to, you know, make some kind of uh, last push around around Marib, uh, that's in a sense uh, not, you know, not the U.S.'s business. And and frankly, it it seems it's not going to change the outcome. I mean, if if the Saudi backside was going to do well in this war, it would have already happened. So now we're talking about one of these very long shot ideas that, that one last one military victory after a string of defeats will somehow strengthen your case at the negotiating table. And that might be true, but it also often is not, is not the case in, in negotiations. And, and so, uh, you know, I think that, 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 that is the crux of it. And, uh, and it's really painful to ask someone who, for whom this, this, this is an existential question. How do you accept a, a, a terrible outcome uh, in your country, if that outcome at least uh, ends ends the war, I understand what you're saying, but an offensive to push the Houthis out of Marib is the only best solution we have to, or the only alternative we have uh, to prevent a major humanitarian disaster and a, a, a and a sharp uh, turn in Yemen conflict to the worst. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll know in a um, month or and, so if that happened, right? If it, if that doesn't happen yeah, but, more or less but, now, I mean, the chance is over. Well, and I understand you're saying six years, nothing has happened. But again, as I said before, there has been a lot of pressure on the Hadi government and the Saudis, and that played into the hands of the Houthis militarily. We cannot just ignore that, that it happened. The UN envoy did that. The U.S. did that, even under Trump administration. 
um, and the international community did that. And and we again, you know, this. Yeah, I mean, you you want America to, well, and, and the Saudis to, started to, yeah. started the war in the first place. So you, I mean, it's not as if but, they were. But that's they, a different that's a different discussion. Uh, that you know why the Saudis start. How if they you're going to say the Saudis the didn't win because they how, were restrained by the West, then you then then you can't ignore that they started the war, right? I mean, you have to. No, but that's but that's that, that's a different discussion. Why the Saudis intervened? How they mismanaged the war? They're responsible for a lot of a lot of the you know, bad situation in Yemen. I, I don't disagree on that, but I'm, I'm talking about the current situation and how the Biden administration approach will just make it worse. I'm talking about right now, realistically, what's going to happen if a push for a ceasefire that only one side respects and the other does not, how that is going to play out. Um, and I think we owe it to Yemen that we we give that a shot, a military offensive that pushes the Houthis far away from Marib, where Marib is safe, and a change in the trajectory kind of is more supportive to a political solution or an agreement of, of some sort. Um, but to say, well, let's just wash ha our hands off of Yemen because America shouldn't be involved in any more wars and ignore how that is going to impact Yemen, I think that's, I you know, I, I morally, I think that's problematic. Um, and, you know, I understand the anti-war, anti-weapon sale. I understand all the anti-Saudi sentiment, all of that. But this is about Yemen. This is not about, you know, America. This is not about the Saudis. This is about Yemen. Uh, and I think it, I think it's, it's, you know, the U.S. is partly responsible for what happened to Yemen because the U.S. supported the Saleh regime, which created conditions that led to the 2011 uprising, and then the U.S. was supportive of the transition deal that created conditions that led to the war. So the U.S. is responsible now to continue to, 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 to help Yemen. Um, and again, that help should be based on realistic understanding of what's happening on the ground rather than wishful thinking, which I think is what the case is. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. I'm talking to Peter Salisbury and Nadwal Dawsari about the conflict in Yemen. Uh, as we move to a, a, a close of this uh, conversation, this particular conversation, uh, I want to ask you both to talk a little bit about what um, what is the strategic significance of uh, of a more entrenched or more powerful uh, Houthi. Houthi presence in in Yemen, um, and how um, how has that changed over the course of this war? Uh, and finally, what what if any uh, international leverage is there over the Houthis? Because I've 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 heard people uh, maintain that even the Iranians have very little uh, influence over their over over the Houthis, despite their important support to them. So, uh, and this and and as you answer this, I, I want you to. Help us understand a little bit of how how you think uh, life is going to change for Yemenis in the next five or ten years as a result of of this conflict. Well, look, um, you know, I, I I know people tend to think about Houthis as Iran proxy, and a lot of people are hopeful that Iran can somehow convince the Houthis to de-escalate in exchange of you know some concessions from the U.S. administration. Um, Iran does not control the Houthis. It has very little 
um, little uh, influence over the Houthis. In fact, Iran has done a brilliant investment in the Houthis. They've supported them with military strategizing, um, military organizing, uh, weapons, uh, development of you know ballistic missiles and and um, and drones and and all of that. And and it's it's really helped the Houthis. At the same time, you know, Iran does not control the Houthis, but both have strategic interests. Um, Houthis are part of the axis of resistance um, that are linked to Iran in the region. And Houthis, if you if you read reports about the areas uh, that are under control of the Houthis, they're extremely repressive. Um, they have replicated the Iran regime um, uh, sec security state um, where extreme repression is the only answer to any even potential uh, critiques of, of uh, I mean they blow up homes they, they execute people they have thousands in their dungeons uh, hundreds have been tortured to death they are extremely um, repressive of women um, and uh, you know it, and you can imagine that if they control Yemen, you will see more of that. And Yemenis don't want to live like that. That's why so many people are opposed to the Houthis, because they know the minute Houthis control areas, that's what happens. They close schools and they turn them into military camps, indoctrination camps. Um, this is a group that is motivated by ideology more than anything. Um, ideology and power. They believe in a divine right to rule as descendants of the prophet. Um, so... If Houthis take over Yemen, um, it's going to be a huge setback in, you know, in human rights, in democracy, in basic, you know, living conditions. Um, at the same time, and, and I'm talking based on Houthis' stated objectives, what they say in their media, what their leaders say, um, what their manifest, manifesto says, um, they're not only concerned with Yemen. They want to take Yemen, but they want to push north. And once they solidify their control over Yemen, it will only be a matter of time before they push north towards Saudi Arabia. Um, and mark my words, if that happens, you and I can talk like 10 years from now and I can tell you that I told you so. And hopefully we'll not get to that. But, you know, um, this is a group that unfortunately a lot of Western analysts have romanticized with. They've underestimated They've 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 analyzed Houthis from pragmatic things, and Houthis are not pragmatic. Um, and you know the threat of the Houthis is 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 hugely underestimated. And I I hope it, there will not be a day where we say, well, you know, we made a big mistake by kind of normalizing their gains. Peter, what's your take on this? Yeah, so. In 2014, in January 2014, I went to, to Sada for the first time, which was kind of relatively recently under full Houthi control. And I, I really distinctly remember speaking to one of the guys I was with who was saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take over the whole of Yemen and, and one day we'll probably go to, to Jerusalem. Um, and I was kind of like, well, that's, that's a bit nuts, right? You, you're kind of stuck up here in, in the north. Um, and some people who were on that trip with me have kind of reminded me that that you know they've pursued their their goals um, and some of their stated aims are are sort of regional to be part of the the axis of resistance and to be more 
effective than than even Iran. Um, in terms of their ideology and structure, um, I'm not. I, I mean, it, it probably doesn't matter in many ways. A lot of people kind of will say, you know, that they're trying to reinstate the imamate or they're trying to replicate the um, Islamic Republic in in Iran. I think we're seeing something new and different that's a hybrid of lots of different ideas and things happening in in front of us that builds on existing state structures and bits of the Salah regime and borrows from abroad and borrows from the the past as well. But it is, you know, it's it's highly securitized. Um, It's it's something uh, for the time being where the Houthi leadership will say, look, it's a war. We we can't deal with internal dissent right now, but it looks an awful lot like a, a very strong police state. And it, it's you know not unreasonable that the Yemenis who can't who won't fit into that structure are really worried about their own future and their ability to return home to, to Sana'a. I think the the theory of, of case that the I and others have, have put forward in the past is that the Houthis clearly um, thrive in wartime but are going to be less able to expand and persist if they're, they're pushed into political competition. And the question for me is, how do you, how do you do that and at least sort of test that case? Um, and, and that's kind of where I am. How do you, you move Yemen into a place where political competition is the, the main issue and governance and the ability to provide services to people becomes the, the question of the day? But I, I, you know, I accept that for a lot of people that that sounds naive, um, and I, I've got to put that within the context that sort of this is a movement that's had a, a lot of success um, and is highly ambitious um, and has been on a, a roll for, I mean, depending which way you cut it, six years. But then let's not forget this is sort of a movement that has been in some form of conflict since two thousand and four. So for seventeen. Years and if you think when they started as a small um, religious revivalist turned sort of slightly more radical group that was fighting a, a war with the um, central regime, and now they control twenty million people, um, a thriving war economy, and are holding their own to their minds with a, a major regional power. It, the question is sort of psychologically. How do you you create that that shift? Um, and I I don't have a, a great answer for you, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, I think very clearly a major part of the answer is closing down war economies and and uh, ending conflicts. But but just as as much so, it has to be done done so with a lot of engagement and some alternative that doesn't just abdicate the space to them. Um, I do see uh, a lot of continuity between. Uh, the the sort of failed failed policies uh, uh, vis-a-vis the Hashid in Iraq or Hezbollah in uh, in Lebanon or or Assad in Syria um, and I think you know the one the one place where maybe both of your emphasis is slightly off is I mean I think you both agreed in a compelling way about how the U.S. debate is is driven more by Washington concerns than by Yemeni concerns um, and the flip side of that which. I think you probably both agree of it didn't say this way is that uh, because 
uh, very few people here actually care how this turns out for Yemenis. They're willing uh, to to embrace policies that might be terrible uh, for the people who live in Yemen uh, if if those policies um, you know happen to to fit in with uh, the advocates' particular view on say rolling back the uh, uh, the axis of resistance in the region. And that's an equation I'd love to see changed. I find it very frustrating that the two poles seem to be either. Uh, you know, forever war on the one hand, or sort of happy abdication to terrible uh, extremists in the region on the other. And I, I don't think that's right. I don't think the alternative to forever war is to let, you know, the Houthis or Assad al-Haq or, or whoever just sort of take over and, nor, you know, civilianize the war economy they came to power on um, and then be, you know, be the next generation's despots. Yeah. And just to, yeah. to make one additional point as quickly as I, I can. I mean, at the beginning of the, the war, a lot of Yemenis would say, look, sectarianism isn't a thing in Yemen. People have always prayed side by side, so on and so forth. There's some truth and there's some, some nuance to that. But one thing that, that we've definitely seen over the course of the conflict is mounting religious rhetoric going every which way and the growth not only of, of the Houthis, who clearly have a religious ideology, and paint their their rivals as Al Qaeda and, and ISIS, but also religiously motivated fighting groups who are also pretty pretty hardline in their worldview. And if the the theory of case becomes, and I don't think it's there yet, but kind of just leave the leave the Yemenis to to duke it out and see what happens. We know what happens in these kind of conflicts. The the radical ideas, the more extreme ideas tend to create the greater morale for fighting forces and persist. And there is the danger that you just end up creating a, a toxic melting pot for rival, you know, hardline, violent religious ideologies. And that then spills out over into the rest of the world in five, 10, 20 years time. So there is a there is a strategic reason for the US to try and find a smart way to help ease things towards uh, an end. Um, but there's also sort of a, a, a bad way of doing that as, as well, which is, of course, easy for me to say. Nadra, do you want the last word to, to end the podcast on? I, I just want to say that I completely agree with, with Peter. I couldn't put it more clearly myself. So, um, yes, there is, uh, there is uh, a stake and it's in America's interest to address the Yemen conflict twice and to kind of my, my advice is to you know, sit back and avoid any quick fixes and be realistic. Thank you. Thank you both. We've been talking to Nadwa Dawsari, a Yemen analyst at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and Peter Salisbury, who is a Yemen analyst at the International Crisis Group uh, in New York. Nadwa, Peter, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having Thank us. you. been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.